for July 2nd, 2012. It's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 209. Meryl Streep, Oscar-nominated government assassin. Welcome to the Overthinking It podcast, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. Uh, from Los Angeles, California, for the last time this summer, I'm Matthew Rather, here with two other guys, all in a great mood. Uh, <laughs> Yay! It's hot. <laughs> it is. It's hot in, uh, in Boston, it's hot in Los Angeles, and maybe it's hot where you are. But we hope to bring some cool, refreshing overthinking to make your uh you know to make your experience a little more a little more temperate so panel in honor of ted the seth MacFarlane movie that has come out this weekend um which pete saw i believe pete you and you talked about it on the podcast you saw a uh, a scene from it being filmed several years ago or a couple years yeah, ago yeah I, I didn't i haven't seen the movie yet uh busy weekend but i did see the the shot of uh marky mark attending the opening of the phantom menace which was historically recreated in lovely davis square somerville massachusetts nice yeah yeah um dressed is Darth Maul. It was pretty sweet. It was. Uh, it sounds awesome. Uh, the uh, in honor of that uh, panel, what toy from your childhood would you like to resurrect? Uh, and uh, or and not resurrect? Not like your toys are dead. If you're like me, you keep them all in a little glass case in your bedroom, and they watch you all the time. <laughs> no. Uh, uh, w- would you like to to grant life to and have accompany you uh, now into your thirties? Uh, first in the alphabet, drink. It's Peter Fenzel. Hey. So my my closest friend among my stuffed animals was was Fred, who was a teddy bear who, when you turned him over, made like a sound like a cow. And like, uh, but I would not pick him uh, just because it would be more interesting to pick my second favorite uh, stuffed animal. Actually, my second favorite stuffed animal was Flip the Rabbit, who I would grab by the ears and flip. I'd like throw him into the air and flip him over. Uh, and that's why I called him Flip. So, no, I wouldn't pick him either. What I would pick is my third favorite stuffed animal, uh, <laughs> whose actual name, according to the name on the tag, was, was I think, Flegel. Um and then I called him Fleagle Eagle Beagle, and he was a little – he was a dog, a stuffed dog who had uh, big floppy ears, and I would grab the big floppy ears and fly him around like an airplane, right? Uh, and so he would be Fleagle Eagle Beagle, and he'd go on like flying adventures and stuff, although I guess I didn't really tend to put him in fictional worlds. I would tend to fly him around you know, my room uh-huh. and land him on things and stuff. But yeah, but he had like a big, fat, broad nose and like a big, fat – low broad head and his eyes were brown glass beads that were sunk into the kind of uh, the little crease the deep crease between his big protruding nose and his big protruding forehead so he always looked kind of like disenchanted and like a little bit critical of what was going on around him uh-huh. uh despite the fact that he was a flying dog uh which one would think might make one lighthearted. uh so i think i think both he would be successful and interesting as like a flying friend and also perhaps as a as a sort of uh, Latter Day Borscht Belt insult comic, a la Triumph or something of that nature. Uh, so I think he'd be a fun guy to have around, and I'd be able to fan me with his ears. It's very hot environment. <laughs> with his enormous, yes, with his enormous ears. John mm. Parrish. What up? All right, so gonna go for an interesting choice. If I could bring any toy from my childhood to life, it would be my old eight-bit Nintendo Entertainment System. Just because I imagine having so many different cartridges 
put into it and played through it, it would have a wide variety of stories in that I, I imagine that, you know, given all the, the various Nintendo games I played in my youth, I only got so far through so many of them. I didn't beat every game I played. But I'd imagine just by having to, to load the, the read-only memory state of it, the, the Nintendo console would have to have experienced everything that I, that I put in and played, even if I never finished it through. So it could tell me things that I never discovered about the games I played, like, oh, if only you'd, if only you'd gotten past that one boss, there was that power-up. Oh, you would have had such a good time then, yeah. John. I'd be like, oh, oh, if only I'd have known. Thanks for telling me, Nintendo. Yeah. And we could have talked about the games I'd played and beaten or failed to beat or just, you know, just reminisced about that, that one window of my childhood. <laughs> By window, I mean, you know, stretch of Totality. six to ten years or what have you where I spent a lot of time in the basement of my house playing Nintendo. Uh that's yeah that's excellent i mean if the if if only the the video game machine could be your friend right because we spend a lot of time with it or the computer we spend my- so much time with it we identify with it so strongly and then we we set it aside why can't why can't it be friends right it's yeah it's exactly like it's sitting you know toy story style you know d- d- cast asunder uh, or cast aside like the uh you know the end of of a toy's toy's life it sits with the other consoles with the pong console and with the atari and with the uh G- sega genesis you know in a big pile of video game consoles and they tell each other their war stories of f- former glory in days when they once were great so that's on that cheery note <laughs> We're in great moods, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not cheering out. I'll go on to mine. My the, the, my favorite toy. I'm not sure it was my favorite toy. I can't recover, you know, the thoughts I had when I when I was a child. I, I was not really even aware of them when they were going on. Probably I was that kind of kid. And uh, but the the toy I have the most nostalgia for. The toy I remember. Uh, remember liking and kind of remember the time I spent playing with uh, most is a set of wooden blocks. Um, And I would build, you know, things, fortresses, usually buildings, uh, rival buildings on either side of my, of my bedroom. And they would, you know, fire block missiles at one another and try to, to, uh, knock one another down. And I wish these, uh, these pieces of wood or perhaps, uh, perhaps one of my favorite pieces of wood, uh, don't get smutty, uh, is, uh, could have followed me into, into adulthood. And I'm speaking of the, um, the arch bridge, piece have, have you are, do you know what i mean it's like a, a section of two by four that is um it's rectangular but there's a uh a hemispherical cutout right and sometimes the set actually includes the hemisphere and you can you can put okay. it in and then knock yeah, it out I can, visu- I can visualize it yeah so it looks i mean it looks like what it looks like a piece of wood with a kind of a groove uh, or a notch or a, a u-shaped kind of groove or a notch in it and these were very important uh blocks because they served as entrances or as you know bridges very important bridges to to you know transport the uh transport the uh wooden block missiles you know from the wooden block uh uh ordnance you know factories to the wood 
wooden block launch pads. You know, these were these were crucial blocks. And I, I imagine that this block could tell me stories of the things that it had seen. You know, these 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 great events happened uh, passing over my my bridge or under uh, uh, under my tunnel or uh, or such like. And I, you know, I wish I could um, sit sit with me here on my desk and you know regale me with with war stories. Uh, you know, I don't know. Yeah, I, I remember playing with that block in particular. I wonder whether it would get as much pleasure out of having that semicircular piece kind of put into that gap and kind of slid around in it uh-huh. as as I had pleasure doing that was a child. It sounds dirtier than it was, but it was more like because it was it was sort of smooth and and uh, you know so much of blocks is and building with blocks is kind of sharp corners and balancing and like you know leaning things against each other. But those two pieces they kind of the smoothness of them, the way they were sanded down and the way that they kind of slid against each other was always something that I thought was felt pretty cool. Right? right. It was like a cool thing. Do you think that the block is like a total perv? for that sort of interaction like it just it's like oh, <laughs> put, put the semicircular block in me again <laughs> do oh yeah it be, i mean does it is it by definition a female block because right. it, it has like a space for another block to be put in or is it a male block because it's uh you know it's it's your <laughs> kind buddy because it's, it's kind of because per, it's kind of pervy yeah it's kind of pervy i guess <laughs> i'm biased i guess let's all list our biases over i, the week and I think you're right i think you're onto something about blocks being sort of rectilinear and i and i always like took a certain amount of pleasure in the blocks fitting together you know uh it right like very neatly that is to say the the um if you set them on the narrow edge or if you set them uh get flat um and you lined up four blocks and then you put uh you put another piece perpendicular to them that you know the sizes they were cut such that they would fit nicely into each other and i took a certain amount of of like aesthetic pleasure in that and also like a sense of like things being right in the block universe uh because there seemed to be no extraneous or no ill-fitting block pieces because they were all built to they were all built to fit together so um so yeah the any sort of curved block you know i remember there were there were also two triangle blocks which came apart to form a square uh, sorry which were a square and they came apart to form two triangles two um right triangles uh isosceles right triangles um if if I remember trigonometry and uh, boo 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 uh, radical two right boo boo radical two <laughs> yeah right uh, <laughs> yeah one yeah one one radical two exactly uh, and the um, uh, yeah and those were those were a little more in the ethos of the the block and actually I if you set the uh, if you set the um, the uh, if you set the uh, the block with a notch in it down bridge style the two uh the two triangle blocks you could set those on top of them and they would form a a triangle on top of the block with the semicircular piece uh cut out so sort of hermaphroditic in that sense right like the uh <laughs> the uh the triangle the triangular straight up protuberance and the um hemispherical uh, uh opening uh in in the bottom wow i mean that that androgyny seems very present in the architecture of the cathedral right like with its, ro- <laughs> with its rose windows and uh, next to its buttresses right and it's like vaulted uh right. ro- ceilings that are at the same time beneath you know thrusting spires uh-huh um yeah 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 i think i think there's definitely some uh some dialectical tension there in your um you know sort of l- medieval style of uh of block juxtaposition uh, right and and partness 
<laughs> That's what, right? Yeah, absolutely. Like, uh, so I guess, I guess what I'm saying is that uh, the toy I'd like to have with me uh, represents the kind of longing for a prelapsarian uh, wholeness when you know man and woman uh, coexisted harmoniously in uh, in balance in the Garden of Eden. And I love how in the Garden of Eden, there's still a train that carries missiles. Places. <laughs> <laughs> like in the in like the land of a child's fantasy, right? Like when, when there's this rosy glow over all creation, there's still like a missile train. Yeah, but missiles, not- I don't know. Missiles aren't, I think at that age, especially if you're a young boy playing with blocks, they're not like a, a symbol of destruction or aggression. Or may, I mean, maybe they are, but on, on a very small scale, they're more, they're more a symbol of a kind of assertion of self. You know what I mean? Like... Uh, uh, like it's it's sort of a it's it's sort of a, a statement that I can do things in the world, right? That I can I can uh, affect the world. Uh, you know, I can launch my missile. Right, right, right. I and guess. like the airplanes that have other airplanes that come off of their wings and stuff. Yeah, it's all creation and recreation mm-hmm. of the self through the toy. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good um, stuff. Excellent. Well, uh, uh, Pete, uh, what, <laughs> what have you done pop culture wise this okay. this week? So, Sorry, I, I couldn't even I couldn't even get it together to to find a segue. No, I mean this is a weird week because a bunch of the recent weeks we've talked about the big movies that have come out. Sure. And, and this weekend, none of us have seen the big theatrical movies. We might talk about them a little bit later. The biggest movie that I saw that came out this week was a little unorthodox. And it's, it's something I've talked about on the podcast before in this sort of general oeuvre, body of work here. Uh, Team Fortress 2, which is a PC game still. You can play it on the Xbox or PS3 or whatever back in the day, uh, which was released originally along with Portal as part of the Orange Box Source Engine uh, update to Half-Life, Half-Life 2. Uh, so if you've heard of Portal, this is kind of released at the same time. Released the last of its short animated uh, videos that in which you met the various classes that you could play in the game as characters, as cartoon characters. And this is something that goes back to 2007, uh, where this first-person shooter, where you go around and you're shooting people, right, but you're trying to accomplish some sort of team goal, uh, started introducing its its sort of group of colorful little specialized characters. The heavy weapons guy, right? The the soldier with his rocket launcher. The alcoholic Scottish-African uh, descent uh, demo man who has, like, a an eye patch and, and a booze bottle and shoots grenades and stuff like they all have very strong characteristics and the last one which was the pyro was released this week which i think is interesting for a number of reasons uh and ones that are not just interesting they're interesting more than just to people who play team fortress so the pyro the first thing that's interesting about it is why is the pyro last and the pyro is the last character he's do with a flamethrower right or a woman we don't know whether a pyro is male or female because the pyro is wearing a gas mask and the pyro's voice is never led like audible like you can hear it but you can't understand it it's not intelligible it's mummering and it's how the pyro talks right and is wearing a full rubber suit with a flame retardant shielding and big old uh gas mask and you can never see their face so for years, there's been speculation as to who the pyro is. is the, and there's been a lot of speculation, and people claim hints that the pyro is in fact a woman, which would be a coup because all of the other classes are men, right? Uh, or that the pyro is an alien, or the most recent one, that the pyro is a monkey who was sent to outer space, who came back from outer space, uh, and, and was mutated in some way to become human-sized and to carry this flamethrower around. And the interesting thing about Meet the Pyro is, is what they actually do introduce in this, in this movie, and you can see it on YouTube, look it up on Meet the Pyro, you can put it in the show notes, uh, is they don't show you the pyro's face. 
they do show you the inside of the pyro's mind, where the pyro is kind of going around and from the external perspective, lighting people on fire, which is a pretty nasty thing to do, right? Everyone else is kind of scared of the pyro, thinks the pyro is crazy, right? Which is, has some basis in the game. The pyro will wear, like, traffic cones on its head or, you know, carry around mailboxes and hit people with them. The pyro is pretty deranged. Um, and everybody's talking in, like, secret interviews about how they, who is the pyro? What does the pyro do? And this is juxtaposed boosting shots with the pyro just setting whole areas on fire and burning people to death. And then you go into the pyro's mind and you see, like, a sort of bronyish, uh, paradisical rainbow land, yeah. right? Where the the song, if you do you believe in magic, right, plays like that all the do you believe in magic, and in the young girl smile, da, 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 da. and 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 the pyro is imagining that it's shooting rainbows at all of the people, which it sees as like little babies <laughs> wings flying around, right, little floating unicorns and and uh, rolling green hills, right, and the pyro imagines all this, and so it's cutting back and forth from the interior of the pyro's mind, and then all the people who are being burned alive by the pyro, like sort of begging and screaming for their lives. This is a trick that's been done by The Simpsons, I think, once, and they, they do it uh, a couple other places around where it's like, you know, oh, this person is burning to death, but they're dancing, right? And so you kind of cut back and forth between the way that people view burning to death. Uh, but anyway, like, that's a lot to say. One of the interesting things about it, right, and this is the last sort of big ad I'll make before tossing it out to comments, is that in 2009, an anonymous 4chan user posted a monologue by the pyro because this has been a popular game for a long time um, where the pyro says oh look how happy everybody is when I point my gun at them they all dance around and, the, and I love making them happy and, and, and uh, they all fall down after they get so tired from being so happy and it's like super creepy post about on the video game board at 4chan or you know slash v slash whatnot um, about the pyro's interior life as this sort of like perverse you know giddy childlike uh, individual, you know, burning to death all of the people around him or her, as it were. Uh, and it was—it's interesting to discuss or to think about. Uh, to what degree? Did it, what does this mean about about canon and people talking about canon? This is what I want to toss out to you guys because there's a lot of talk around fandoms and, and the internet uh, around different pop culture properties around what is canon, what is kind of fan made, what's the boundary between fan fiction and what the people officially write. And I mean, here this is a, a video game where the users will go to a workshop and like 3D model weapons and ask Valve to put the weapon into the game because they keep putting new weapons into the game, new items into the game to keep the game interesting. And keep the game fresh uh and and so there's a real dialogue between the users and the makers of the game and here's a situation where even if they didn't cop it directly like there seems to be some sort of influence between you know this this thing that was said about this character who was always mysterious right and, and this thing that turned out to be the result it's hard to say for certain well before this was written what was the pyro like what was what was behind the mask of the pyro in the pyro's mind in 2008 Right, like, uh, can you even say that? Did it exist? Well, so you know, I'll I'll jump in and, and take a stab at it. So, Team Fortress Two, and this is this is an important detail for listeners who might not be familiar with the game, is that it's it's sort of a it's it's a fun game, you know, in in the sense that all first person shooters can be fun, but it it also has a sort of light hearted element to it. And that the characters are a little cartoonish; they're not photorealistic, and they're not striving for it. And there's a sort of a sort of joyful animation to their motions. I mean, they're shooting each other, but there's not like 
gobbets of blood and Pete, correct me here, but there's not, you know, sprays of gore going up. It's just, you know, someone gets shot and boom, explosion. Oh God. I mean, there, there is, there's like giblets and pieces of people's bodies that are thrown around, but even that okay. is done in kind of a lighthearted fashion. It's, it's an interesting little mix, but you're, right. you're definitely but, right about the general style. Yeah. It's not, it's not bloodily detailed in the way that say fallout or call of duty would be. Right, right, right. It's a right. very different vibe than call of duty. Definitely. Very, very different vibe. Yeah. So, my my suspicion would be that if they're trying to give the pyro a fun personality, there are only so many ways you can do it for a character who is designed to set people on fire. And <laughs> you know, there, there's a very there's a very limited avenue of of creative of creative options when you're coming from that. And I think the idea that you know, this this character is deranged enough that he thinks setting people on fire is a gift or a party or some some magical rainbow happening is it's it's not it's a pretty intuitive answer uh, this is something that comes up with and i know we were mentioning before the podcast how we didn't want to talk about improv or sketch or our, our comedy careers of varying levels of success but there is this does come up in in discussions about sketch comedy in particular the idea of parallel development the idea that you know two people working in isolation or you know like Leibniz and Newton coming up with the calculus two people working in isolation can come up with the same brilliant idea at the same time because they're working within similar cultural contexts they have similar inputs and they're creative enough and they just happen to come out the same way so you might have two people telling the same joke or writing a sketch with the same punchline and these people have no other connection with each other, but they just happen to come up with the idea at the same time. And it's not that one of them copied from the other. It's that, oh, you know, given a limited range of creative inputs, these are two of the more likely answers, and we just happen to arrive at them at the same time. So that's that's one possibility. And this is this is me raw speculation with limited knowledge of either Team Fortress or 4chan, but that seems it seems at least plausible to me, just from my armchair. I mean, yeah. Also, the 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 piece has had three years to kick around in discussion groups, and and so there's a lot of avenues for this kind of information. And also, I don't think it was necessarily boldly original when it was posted, right? So, I totally hear you on this idea that people do converge upon similar ideas over time. Uh, and I'm not saying that that Valve like copied them, I guess, in the sense of like, oh, we'll steal this, we'll make it the thing. It is it is interesting, and maybe you guys can can toss this in in, in a broader sense. What does this say about about canon, right? Because um, certainly this is something you can say you can you can kind of attribute critically to any number of artistic endeavors, and you can say uh, all these people were coming up with the same things and the same ideas at the same time. Uh, you know, it's not tremendously. You know, we've got July Fourth coming up. It's not tremendously original that aliens are attacking the Earth on Independence Day, right? Like that's not an idea that is that is so independent, as it were, from all of general thought that these people deserve special credit for their originality. And yet, we still do attribute certain instances of them, a certain amount of authority and extra authority, you know, because they're canonical, because they're the real ones. They're ones that are out there and, and published. Um, and I mean, I wonder. This this definitely seems to demonstrably be a, a phenomenon growing in its importance and its visibility. So we, well, I mean, I guess it's hard to say grow importance, but definitely growing in visibility. You can see canon, more frequently. Yeah, canon takes on a different a different term. I guess a different a different perspective when we're talking about uh, a, a work of a work of art, and I include video games as art in this case. Sorry, Roger Ebert. 
uh, a work of art which the body of which is constantly evolving. Team Fortress 2 isn't a static property that exists in one form and will, will never be added to again. As more content is being added to it, as you yourself described, Pete, the, the form of the art is constantly evolving. So there's no, there's no canonical interpretation the same way there might be for, say, Don Quixote, in which, you know, there's not going to be, there are never going to be more pages added to Don Quixote, or if they are, it's going to be by, you know, Joe Cervantes, and who cares what he thinks. It's, but with, with Team Fortress 2, the original creators are going to be adding more stuff to it. And I guess you could, and there probably are corners of the internet where they do get into really nitpicky arguments over like, oh, you know, prior to this patch, you know, this was the ideal version of Team Fortress 2 as it should have been, as it should have been meant to be consumed. Whereas, you know, after such and such patch was released, oh, it's no longer a, a valid version of Team Fortress 2. And that's that's possible, but I, I I would get the impression, I would hope anyway, that most people take the totality of Team Fortress 2 as the existing version of same. Yeah, it, I think that. Yeah, you know, go ahead, man. It depends. It depends, doesn't on the on the contract that you sort of enter into with the with the creators of a um, uh, with the creators of of a work, right? Like there are. Uh, you know, I don't know. There are video games, and like I'm thinking back to, um, I'm thinking back along. I mean, it's a deep album cut, but I'm thinking of Mist now, right? Like there was a sequel to Mist, but the the uh, the idea that was that Mist was this sort of self-contained aesthetic experience and kind of experiential uh, work, right? That it's uh, you know they didn't they didn't like create new levels to Mist. You know what I mean? You couldn't like download you couldn't download more, and and yet things like I guess Team Fortress or or I mean I you know I'm gonna show my ignorance of video games here, but um you know games where there are sort of levels or there are worlds or you know um uh, online games i guess a lot where sort of worlds are opened up uh as you go and like the the idea is that it's a um what you're buying into is a uh you know an ever expanding an ever expanding world it's the difference i mean it's in a i mean some some video games i guess i'm saying are more like movies and some are more like uh serialized tv shows where you where you sort of follow uh, characters over a period of time, and I guess uh, you know my question. My question then, as a, as not really a gamer and sort of curious about this this area of creativity and sort of art, is is um, what are you buying? You know what I mean? Or what are you signing on to when you sign on, sign on to a game that that isn't self contained? That could you know that could like get patched that could have things added added onto it and i mean i think you're signing on to a, a particular uh ethos right like in the aristotelian sense kind of like sense or character or g- sort of feeling right um, possible i mean i'll 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 throw a metaphor out there let's see if it let's see if it works let's see if people buy it i think what you're specifically in the case of a first person shooter and we 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 tend to lump video games in as being all of a certain class of art, but I think we're at the point in the history of the medium where we can start dividing different video games in and considering them in different lights. And I think with a first-person shooter in particular, especially one where new weapons and new maps and new class builds and such are coming out with, with some regularity, I think what you're buying is essentially a membership in a club. 
like think of a, a club in the old school sense, like the old, the very old British sense, if you will. Like, oh, you know, you're members of you're members of this club, and you can show up and have dinner there and have drinks, and you'll see some folks you know, and you'll say hi, and it's also a way to to meet new people as well. And every now and then they'll come out with these new social events or these new options, or they'll change up the furnishing, and you pick this club as opposed to others because you like the people there and you like the experience it provides, and maybe just maybe just a little bit of status, a little bit of cachet. You're like, oh, I'm a member of this club. This is where I spend the most time. I've been there long enough to have such and such status within its walls. And there, there's definitely a certain aesthetic when you join and take part in a particular club. It's not just it's not just literally the geographic space it occupies and the time you spend there. It's it's subscribing to an aesthetic of sorts. And if I, and you know, just sticking with the metaphor, seeing if it works, I, I think the, the first-person shooter mo- uh, modus where there's constant new content being generated fits, fits pretty closely to that. I mean, I think you're, you're hitting it on the head because I think this is, First of all, to Matt, to address your sort of uh, thinking about this, this is the direction that video games appear to be going in, right? Is is It is now more common than not that the game that you purchase is going to have some sort of patch or some sort of downloadable content or some sort of add-on, right? That you're no longer – the companies no longer want you to buy the video game as a product that you give a discrete amount of money for and you get a discrete amount of, of programming for, a discrete amount of software for. They want you to buy a playing experience, right? And this is exactly what you're talking about, John. They want you part of the social environment of it. They want you part uh, – You want they want your social life to be shaped around the games. You'll tell other people about it. And also they want a reiterated – you know, an iterated uh, revenue stream from it. They want to be able to charge you periodically for providing you with periodic extended play experiences rather than just have you buy Super Mario Brothers once and then play it a whole bunch of times through your entire life. Um, and I, I think that's totally a big thing. I think it's a big thing across the economy, not just in video games. I mean, this is what Zipcar is, right, is turning owning a car into a club where, like, I've I'm paying my subscription fee, right, and all the little cars I can use have little names, and I, you know, and there's this whole interface where I can schedule with everybody, and and uh, it's just this idea of paying for things by subscription rather than in flat fees, or rather than in um, sort of yeah, I guess a flat payment for services or goods uh, rendered is something that it, businesses are looking for new ways of doing. Um, I mean, even trying to make so that, I mean, in like each, I mean, in each case. So, uh, okay, I think that's, it, I think that's great, and I think John's right, and you're right. But I think we've we've kind of moved the goalposts a little bit in the sense that, like, uh, what are we buying when we buy a video game? Oh, it's a club. Well, what are we buying when we buy a club? A sense of belonging, but it's not just a sense of belonging. It's a sense of belonging to a to a kind of a brand narrative that I, you know, I feel like is is harmonious with with my identity, right? That, yeah, and that's and that's the th- you know that's the thing, right? Like I'm not one of those Fallout people. I'm one of the Team Fortress people, you know, you know, right? right? Because like the the sort of the messaging around that brand and the sort of the brand identity and the the sort of narrative, the kind of narrativization of it is something that is that is uh, uh, that comports with with my idea of myself or the idea of myself that I wish to project into the into the world. Like I I was. Um, 
uh, I was in uh, Boston for Overthinking It Live, and I, I stayed with an overthinker uh, who one day, when we kind of went out on the town, got a zip car. And I pointed out that, that a car could be rented for, uh, like, a, you know, a fraction of the price of getting a zip car for the day. And, uh, and uh, you know, my friend and your friend, this overthinker, said, uh, yeah, but, I, you know, I just like it. I like the experience of the zip car, you know? And I, I, I guess it is more economical if you need it for, like, an hour to buy groceries or something like that. It's, it's not really supposed to be, like, a multi-day... Uh, multi-day sort of thing but like zipcar is um an interesting example for me because it's inefficient right economically because you could get a you could get a a short-term car cheaper than zipcar but uh but there's a lot of stuff built up around the size of zipcar that uh uh, you know in fact it's its value proposition is kind of like participating in the like the you know proximity sensor touch card um experience of it right I think as a Zipcar, I've used Zipcar, and um, there are definitely circumstances in which it's a good value, circumstances in which it's not a good value. One interesting vector in this whole thing, right, is the contribution that the company makes actively to the experience that you're having, which I think is associated as a social mechanism with the quality of the product in its engineering, right? And, and I'm not just talking about is it a good car, but you know, is the is the software work? Like, does the you know does the service work? Like, does the act? It does matter whether the video game you know is quote unquote good, right? Whether it has fun levels, whether it functions, what its graphics are like, you know, like all this stuff still matters. And what I'm saying here is, in our sort of uh, club mentality. There's a, all this stuff gets bound up, I believe, in the company that's giving you the product or that's selling you the product, right? Um, as sort of its social contribution. So, Zipcar, like, so when we get you, one of the reasons, one of the big reasons that you might want to get Zipcar rather than renting a car is, for example, that Zipcars tend to be pretty clean and smell pretty good and be relatively new cars, right? Uh, this sure. is a good example, at least in my experience. And car rental places, a little bit more hit or miss. Right, I think that sometimes I've had experiences in certain other car places where the car might not be in a great state of repair, or it might not smell very great, or there might be something wrong with it. Right, especially um, especially I, if you're do if you're doing what I'm suggesting and like uh, optimizing for the lowest price per day. Yeah, 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 and I think that the way that that works, and I'm, I'm I'm sort of adding this to what we've been talking about. It doesn't contradict or go askance with anything we've been saying before. But the way that you perceive this value when it becomes kind of turned into part of the social experience, becomes part of your relationship with the vendor, right? And that's why it sort of becomes really important for these companies uh, to maintain these good personal brands, right? And these sort of like personal senses of themselves. Like people love Valve. The company that makes Team Fortress, people love Valve. The guy who, uh, you know, has a majority stake in Valve, uh, you know, was it Gabe, as or Gaben as people like to call him, right? Is like a is a is a hero, right? People love him, make comics of him, and pay silly pictures of him, and he's <clears throat> people love Valve, and I think part of that loving is that the contributions that they make to their product are reliably good value propositions. They don't displease the customers. They work from an engineering perspective and, and all sorts of different kinds of engineering perspectives. Whereas like Electronic Arts has a terrible reputation, right? And is hated, reviled widely across the internet. Although it does a lot of the same stuff. It gives you, sells you sort of an incomplete video game and then gradually sells you more parts of it, right? And, and everybody hates 
the DLC that you get from EA. And, and part of the, this is because they perceive the games that they get as not being as finished or as good or as fun. Um, so what, what I'm saying is that when you're taking a product and you're turning it into an experience, um, you're not making the quality of the product uh, less important from a kind of nuts and bolts perspective, but you do create a lever by which the sort of nuts and bolts quality of the product gets socialized as kind of a social opinion of the vendor who's providing you with it. And that can either be – that sort of like it levers it, – it, it magnifies your reaction uh, to this brand and your engagement with the brand. It makes the brand a lot better if it's really reliably good and a lot worse if it's reliably bad. Uh, and so I think that's one of the phenomena that we're talking about. One of the reasons why, like, Meet the Pyro got, like, 5 million views, right, as soon as it came out uh, on the YouTubes is, is because people are engaged. Uh, there's, I mean, there's also, there's also a level of hipness, right? Like, uh, that it's not just, it's not just the, the nuts and bolts thing. Like, uh, Valve is, and, you know, and from what I know about the company from reading the tech blogs uh, that I read and stuff like that, like, it's perceived as being kind of of the moment and, like, sort of of our... Of our culture, right? Of our internet culture, right? Whereas Electronic Arts is kind of an old, old school, old fashioned corporate uh, uh, video game maker. Oh, yeah. And there's a ton of different elements to that. Every day they run their PR, they have an opportunity, both companies, to affect that perception. And it's built up over millions of interactions, literally, like over extended periods of time. And some of, a big part of that is the, I think, the product itself and the the quality of the product. But also it's customer service and it's, you know, PR and brand management and what properties you work on when you release things. Um, You know, just the, the way that the customer service on the Steam platform is so much better than on the Origin platform. And people, one story of somebody having a bad experience on Origin and it gets all over the frickin' place, right? And, and all of a sudden, oh, we all hate you, right? Um, life in the fishbowl is, is the term that when I'm talking about this sort of stuff at my own job uh, in a different context uh, is, is how we kind of describe it. This idea that the companies always have to be looking after the way that their customers perceive them in everything that they do. And you can't expect to be able to hide things. And you can't expect to be able to deprioritize things, right? Even if from a cost-benefit perspective for you, it's not worth it to provide a certain level of customer service because you've demonstrated it won't cause you know why number of people to buy your game or pay more for it, even if it's it's better for you to cut your costs. The, vet, the damage that that can do to your brand can be huge. So you have to be very careful. Um, and I think that Valve plays that game pretty well. But also Valve has the luxury of playing to PC gamers who are a much smaller group of people uh, and, and are willing generally to pay a higher premium for things. So, I mean, it's, there's a lot that's going for them that makes their work work. And it's not just about being cooler or about being better. Um, they're also kind of lucky. Too, on top of all that stuff, but they they capitalize on the opportunity. So. Yeah, I mean it's I mean you sort of choose the market that you're going to address, right? When you like, yeah. uh, when you develop a product, you you know, I guess they could make console games if they if they wanted to, but it it's a better business, I guess, if you're them to 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 be in that, you know, to do that. I mean, it's generally a, a rule of thumb in business that it's better to be the best in what you're in like one thing than to be bad at a bunch or to be like good at a bunch of other things, right? Um, I suppose I suppose that kind of goes against that like famous off quoted Warren Buffett quote that's like I'd I'd rather be mediocre in a great business than be uh, than be great in a mediocre business, right? Uh oh, is, did he say that? 
I think he said something like that, or maybe it's apocryphal, or maybe I'm making it up. Well, you know, I mean, while I, while I Wikipedia, yeah, it's why we do what we do at Overthinking It, and we don't, you know, publish articles like, you know, you know, 99 surprising ways to turbocharge your life hacks with leftover toilet paper, or so, you know what I mean, something like that. I know a bunch of them. You can make a hat. Is one. <laughs> <laughs> what is leftover toilet paper anyway? You can tell that I play Team Fortress 2 because my, my mind immediately went to hats, which is like the big business model of the game. It's like buying hats and trading for hats that you put on your little dudes as you fight. But um, hats, hats, hats. Anyway. Um, so, yeah. So, so I think, I think it's, it's interesting. It's... Uh, it's a lot to think about, <laughs> and it's interesting that that you know it came together in this because uh, because movies right uh, starting with the Towering Inferno as as where I always like to to benchmark it have become an event based business too right where you're not buying the property you know you're not buying the actual physical property of like the opportunity to watch the sequential art in order right like you're not buying that. You're buying the experience of going to the movie theater, the experience of seeing an opening weekend, the experience of having something that you can credibly take a date to, right? And they and it feels like a special occasion, and they might make out with you, maybe if you do your job well and it all goes well and it's a good movie, or a bad movie and you leave early or it makes you laugh and you can make quips about it. I don't know, um, but I think that I mean you can even we could talk about entertainment and how it's changed like this too and come in this direction. But I think it's interesting that uh, it'll be interesting to see. What businesses become good at making – I mean this is a commercial. Meet the Pyro is a commercial for the game, right? But nobody was really viewing it as such when it was coming out. I mean, yeah, some people were. Millions of people are watching it. I'm not going to say nobody. But uh, I'm not going to mean nobody. But the experience of watching it was like I'm really excited to see this part of the story, right? Um, that is in fact like a commercial for the video game that I play. Uh, and I mean a lot of companies talk a good game about viral marketing, Um but the ones that can turn their products into events in a credible way to the point where we're actually excited to watch the marketing um, and not just Kobe Bryant jumping over a car, but stuff like Meet the Pyro where it actually means something to us in a story perspective. Uh, I think that, that those companies are creating something special and something fun and, and the future of pop culture to an extent. Right. The, um, the, the people who are, are bad at it. Right, tend to be like TV shows where where like they flash a hashtag on the screen, right? Or or oh, yeah. you know, um, uh, movies where there's like uh, you know ancillary content, uh, you know, videos, internet videos around, uh, kind of surrounding the movie. Um, or uh, oh, what uh, like Chuck, for example, had a not a movie, but um, had like an internet series that went along with it, where you followed two minor characters from Chuck, uh, and they had a, had adventures or or. Something like that, um, and I think they were even more uh, product integrated than um, than uh, than the show, which which was not shy about the uh, about the product placement. <laughs> hey, I yeah, have that. You know, you- I have that Warren Buffett qu- uh, quotation. I, it's it's actually a little different than I remember. It's uh, I'd rather I, I'd rather buy a, a great business at a mediocre price than a mediocre business at a great price which is not quite what i said and actually kind yeah. of seems self-evident on the face of it but I'm, well you know I'm i mean sure he's a value investor so it's kind of a you know it's kind of an important distinction for him to make yeah um yeah i think it reinforces rather than goes against what we've been talking about which is how just how important it is to be good at what you do oh i guess by a mediocre price he means not a steal that is to say he's willing to pay for it. he's willing to pay for uh, for value yeah, I mean, he also was going to be buying large voting shares of companies that he's going to hold for a long time, and that's a that's a pretty big 
difference between what you know you and I do when we run our forex options business, which you can get to at overthinkingit.forexoptions.com, make millions of dollars and no risk. This is not MLM. <laughs> I repeat, this is not MLM. Here's what you do: you give Matt Rather ten dollars, and then you buy uh, futures in the euro, and then Matt goes and buys himself a nice shirt. <laughs> Um, so speaking of <laughs> speaking of movies that are big pop culture events and you know are, are more designed to be conversations to have than necessarily distinct artistic experiences, Steven Soderbergh's latest uh, sort of indie art house darling came out this weekend, and we're not expecting a lot of people to see it because it's it's Steven Soderbergh. You know, he's he's kind of he kind of plays to an indie crowd. There's very intricate little things. There's this, this little picture called Magic Mike, right? Which uh, mm. which which you may have heard of. And <laughs> that's Steven uh, Soderbergh, really? Yeah. Wow. You didn't, you didn't know that was him? Yeah. So I didn't the, research this this movie adequately. Apparently. <laughs> apparently. Uh, so I didn't see it, and I take it that neither of you two saw it. But that shouldn't stop us from talking about it. It never has. So one thing I would like to bring up is that this definitely seems to be the start of a trend with Soderbergh in that if you look at some of his uh, past most recent movies, there's The Girlfriend Experience, which is about a modern high-class prostitute uh, where the uh, title character is played by Sasha Gray, who is actually a, an adult film star in real life. Then there was recently Haywire, which was about, you know, government contract assassins and, you know, action film on the run. And the star wasn't actually a government assassin, but was real-life MMA fighter Gina Carano. And now we have Magic Mike, which is starring Channing Tatum, who has something of an acting career in his own right, but was also, prior to becoming an actor, a male stripper himself. So this is three movies, not quite in a row, but in, in, re- in rapid succession, that Steven Soderbergh's made where the... The protagonist, the star responsible for carrying the picture, has been someone who's who's lived the life that the movie is about, in as close a sense as Soderbergh can approximate. Uh, in other words, someone who is someone who's cast for their experience in the role, rather than necessarily any particular acting chops they can they can bring to it. So right, which if you saw the girlfriend experience was a terrible idea, right? Like. Uh... <laughs> The, I mean, the idea of using of using non actors in films is, I you know, it's not a new idea. It's a, it's an idea that I mean, from the be, from the beginning of films uh, has has been kind of reached. Uh, I mean, the idea has come up again and again and again as you know, as film kind of str- struggles between the the poles of like absolute artifice and absolute sort of verisimilitude or kind of the the documentary um, film truth. Uh, aspect of right of uh, of movie making and like so the the like I'm thinking of like Italian neorealism which like had a very beautiful lyrical kind of arm but then also had this sort of gritty you know post war uh, post post occupation like. Um, uh, you know, non-real actors, just kind of people walking around doing their their uh, doing their own thing. And I think, you know, I don't know. I th- I think it's a terrible. I think it's a terrible idea. I mean, right? Like because the second you you introduce a camera, uh, you're introducing artifice. And I think that the least you can do. Um, and I suppose this is yeah. I should 
point out as if you didn't know that this is just my opinion. But the, the least you can do is is make it uh, is make it a diverting artifice. You know what I mean? You're not you're not sort of doing anybody you're not doing anybody any favors by um, uh, you know by pointing out that that the thing that I'm seeing is not real. I know the thing I'm seeing is not real. I, you know this is not. Um, this is not those early silent films where like the you know the yokel from the stick jumps out of the way of the movie screen because he sees a uh, a, a train coming at the camera right like and uh, you know this is true in the novel also right where there are, there are these sort of uh, uh, kind of along the lines of epistolary novels like these kind of documentary novels where there will be sort of documents and uh emails and sort of half finished insipid conversations and things like this in, in the name of of like uh, in the name of not uh creating an an artificial story and i i, I just i want to i want to stick up for artifice i want to stick up for the well-made play i want to stick up for uh you know so are you are you taken out of the experience by watching someone who you know isn't an actor or let, let me let me make that question a little less loaded by watching someone who portrays a character in a way different from how an actor would portray them. So I'm, I'm going to use, for instance, Haywire, which is the only one of these three that I've seen. I haven't, I haven't seen the girlfriend experience yet, nor, nor magic Mike, but, uh, Gina Carano, for instance, she's, she's not as nuanced an actor. And I, I think we're all comfortable saying it as, you know, your Natalie Portman's or your Reese Witherspoon's or your Meryl Streep's or what have you. Uh, that movie, three, that movie with Meryl Streep in it would be hilarious. <laughs> she went and, Oscar, and yet, no doubt. <laughs> and yet, yet also, yeah, also Oscar nominated. Meryl Streep, Oscar nominated, government assassin. But, uh, but yeah, not as not as nuanced as as you might get from one of those three. But at the same time, who are? And this is a and this is you know it's a conversational question. It's not purely rhetorical. Who are we to say what a you know government contractor assassin would act like in those circumstances? We're coming to it with an expectation of what would be entertaining or engaging or immersive for us to watch. But realistically, people in those situations might not you know might not sound poised or clever or or witty all the time so i i actually think that sounding poised or clever or witty all the time is not is not necessarily what what distinguishes an actor i mean taking you know i didn't see i saw a girlfriend experience i didn't i didn't see hey haywire but i you know um i imagine that if if a person does mma right like there is a particular skill set involved in you know, surviving in the octagon, right? Like there's a, there's a particular kind of set of skills that makes you a good uh, mixed martial arts fighter, right? Fair enough. There, yes. uh, yeah, and, sure. Right. Sure. Okay. Yeah. And there's a, there is likewise a particular set of skills um, that makes you uh, that makes you a good uh, a good actor. And I mean, we actually talked about good acting a couple podcasts. Uh, Oh no! It, we haven't broadcast it yet. We've we've recorded a, a podcast and not yet broadcast it, where we talk about good acting and bad acting and overacting. And so you have that to look forward to in the in the next uh, next half dozen weeks sometime. Um, so uh, right, there's a set of skills that makes an actor a good actor. And I mean, maybe it's maybe it's a little different for everyone. But I, you know, let's let's agree that it has to do with something with appearing sort of not not stilted because there's there's a camera, right? I, I 
once saw I, w- I watched the movie um, The Anniversary Party with Belinky, and Belinky uh, and Belinky was like, "Ah, eh, they're they're all just playing themselves because it's this Alan Cumming, Jennifer Jason Lee thing where you know it's a lot of people and it's kind of based on a lot of people they know and it's kind of based on their lives and their their group of friends." My answer to which was like, "Have you ever pointed a camera at a group of friends and said just be yourself? Like what comes out is terrible. It's almost unwatchable, right? Like people mugging and people being stilted and people being uncomfortable in front of the camera, right? Like there's there is a skill set that invo- that is involved um with being in front of the camera and and the idea that I I, I I want an MMA fighter to do my acting for me about as much as I want an electrician to do my plumbing for me right I think they're different I think there's different skill sets both great skill sets not you know I not not I don't mean to privilege the one uh, over the other but they're they're distinct and they're useful for different kinds of um, of activities Okay, so I mean, we'll we'll grant that, and that's a perfectly valid argument, and I I nine tenths agree with you. But let's take it the next step. So Steven Soderbergh is a fairly experienced director by this point. He's been doing stuff since the early '80s. His big breakthrough was Sex Lies and Videotape in 1989. So at this point, he's been he's been doing commercially successful movies, both indie and mainstream, for. For over twenty years, probably probably closer to thirty. So he knows he knows what he's doing as much as anyone who's directing films today. And this is three films, not in a row, but three films in rapid succession where he's done this sort of thing. So it's it's not something he's stumbling into by accident. It's a deliberate, you know, to, to use the Ian Fleming quote, I always like to hit on: once is happenstance, twice is coincidence, three times is enemy action. So it's a choice he's making. Why do we think he's making this choice? What, what is he getting out of it? Does he not see that these people aren't good actors, or does he care about something other than the quality of their acting? Well, no, I, I mean, I think that's it. I think your, your question answers itself. He cares about something other than the, the quality of their, their acting. And I, I think it has to do with this, like, this aspect of, of sort of film truth or of kind of stripping, stripping away artifice right stripping away artifice from film as you know as though you could kind of push uh fiction film uh in the direction of of documentary film and even i mean documentary film who knows who knows what that even means that covers such a broad range of uh of like screen practice that um it, it's a little difficult uh, even to de- even to define, but this is I, you know th- th- he's he is onto something. I mean, he is a guy who I trust. I you know I'm sorry, maybe I'm playing devil's advocate a little too much. I'm interested in Steven Soderbergh. Uh, you know, I I watched um, Syriana, you know, <laughs> and tried to figure it out. But uh, the um, Syriana Sir- wasn't Steven Soderbergh. No. No. Uh, traffic. Traffic. Right. Yeah. Uh, who was Syriana? The the babble guy. Was a uh, uh, Steven Steven Gagan? I want to say. Okay. Let me, hang on. Yeah, I'll look it up. So, Soderbergh, Soderbergh was the executive producer of Syriana. I don't think he. Was oh, the okay. There you go. So Thanks. His name Steven, is Stephen Gagan. Stephen Gagan. Yeah. Oh yeah, Stephen Gagan. Right, but but he was involved in those, and you know his. Okay, fair enough. Um, sorry, my bad. And I'm happy to be well actually on overthinking it. The, <laughs> the place, the place for all good well actually Right, like I. Uh, well, I watched Girlfriend Experience because you know there as another one because I'm I'm sort of interested in that uh, that whole thing. It, it was not interesting mo- mostly because of the the 
because it seems it seems kind of like a stunt but it's it's a it's a gesture at at something like truth or something like stripping a, la- a layer of artificiality away from um uh, uh, you know, away from fiction filmmaking. And and my point is, it's just, it's my point is that I guess that there's nothing new under the sun, right? Like that this has been a movement. Um, the, this has been a counter movement to the ever more technically uh, sophisticated kind of uh, filmmaking represented by, let's say James Cameron and Peter Jackson at an extreme. Um, the, you know, this has been a counter movement to uh, to that since the beginning of uh, since the beginning of of cinema. And I I guess like for, uh, what I'm saying more or less is that for my though I, though I find it interesting, and I, I guess like as as a person who's interested in art, I find time to to I want to find time to watch those movies. As a person who has a certain number of entertainment do- dollars to allocate. Um, you know, like like Pete says, the, the the mechanics of whether the game is fun to play actually matters uh, past a certain point. I mean, it's also interesting to know. I mean, Channing Tatum is a much less of a stretch than the MMA fighter is in terms of putting her behind the 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 putting her in front of a camera. But I think another th- important thing to note, if you're just looking at Soderbergh's stuff, is just how political it is. I mean, and, and so his participation in that balanced side, right? If we're setting up this dichotomy of, you know, kind of being really, really super proud of the distances that film can transport us from our everyday lives versus trying to use it in some way to turn an eye on our, on ourselves, you know, Soderbergh seems to have, I mean, he made Ocean's Eleven, so we're not talking about, you know, some sort of huge saint here, right? Like, um, did he direct? Yeah, no, 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 yeah, yeah. I don't know. Now you're going to. Yeah, go he, dra- he directed all yeah. these movies. He's one of these guys who seems to have the like the one for me, one for them mentality, and yeah, yeah, yeah. and also uh, hasn't he announced his retirement from from filmmaking? So he's like, I don't know. The, he's yeah, after this, these like half dozen movies I have in the pipeline are done. Uh, I'm out. Uh, peace. Like is what he's saying. Oh, that's kind of nice. Yeah. But I mean, yeah. But you know, he's got like he's got the Matt Matt Damon informant movie. He's got Contagion, right? He's got like uh, the movies that he's making that are more traditionally scripted, other than Ocean's Thirteen, right? Are like uh, tend to be trying to make some sort of political point that is um, democratized. He's got that two part Che Guevara piece that he did. Um, I mean, I don't know. It's I've never been a good one for kind of nailing. Right, down and what he got he got Benicio del, del Toro to play Che Guevara. He didn't actually go into the to the jungle and find an actual revolutionary to embody embody the spirit of of Che Guevara in his you know what like five hour two part epic. Um, right, right, right. It's interesting. I mean, there's also the whole there's also the Val Kilmer approach. Right, like so. If you ask this question to Val Kilmer, if you pose this whole conversation to him, his response, um, if he were feeling particularly douchey, would be something along the lines of like, "I am more fully capable of expressing Jim Morrison as an actor whose body and mind have been prepared as a receptacle for this manner of work than Jim Morrison would be in expressing himself at, at any given moment." Right, like that. Like the the work of the actor is to be the vessel for this experience, uh, and, and so like. <laughs> 
<laughs> and so he would argue that if he were in Haywire, uh, not only would he he would actually be a a better and more full expression of an MMA fighter than an actual MMA fighter, and would spend at least an entire day for every minute on screen preparing himself to reveal that grandiosity to all of you. Uh, I don't know. This- yeah, but it sounds. Like, I mean, it's it sounds like a bunch of of grandiose douchebaggery. But like, if you replace it with plumber, it actually makes a kind of sense, right? Like, you know, even though I am not, even though I am taking a dump, I am not qualified to fix the toilet. Well, I mean, I, you know, I can fix certain things about the toilet. Like if the flapper valve is stuck up or something like that. But like, you know, you don't oh, want me- Mr. Fancy Pantsy can fix his toilet if the flapper valve is stuck <laughs> <laughs> Look who's an adult. Look who's in his 30s. <laughs> well, let me, let me play, play devil's advocate a little and defend, if not Val Kilmer specifically, at least that sentiment. And I, th- I think it harkens back to the point Rather was making earlier about pointing a camera at your friends and telling them to be themselves or about the distinction between representation and experience in itself in that, you know, I'm I'm living my life day to day. But if someone told me, like, all right, we're going to take about 30 to 45 days and sort of create a package experience of your life such that anyone could watch selective footage taken from these 30 to 45 days and get a holistic sense of what it is to live your life, I would, it would either A, be terrible nonsense, or B, I would be so stilted and self-conscious that the result would be, the result would be unwatchable. Whereas 30 to 45 days is a typical shooting schedule. So perhaps some very insightful professional could follow me, study my life, and then say, all right, film me now, and I'm going to be some, I'm going to become some platonic abstract of the John Parrish experience and, you know, if you watch me, you'll get a sense of what it was like to be John Parrish without having to actually follow him with a camera and, and bother him. Right, I just play Team Fortress 2. That way you get the, the best of both worlds. <laughs> like a, it's, like, it's like, oh, I'm going to buy the Pete Fenzel experience. And I'm like, joke's on them. We're doing, we're doing Gold Rush on payload 24-7, Lotus Clan. Let's do this. Like, hey, we'll cry some more. Entire team is babies. Etc. Etc. It would be really. It would be a slice of life, is what it would be. <laughs> They're going to have to glue you back together in hell. <laughs> uh, well, so if you wanted to join this conversation, I mean, this is. We should point out that this is a conversation that people have been having for the last, you know, 120 years, and and really for thousands of years about sort of artifice and um, and uh, representation and mimesis. Um, so you know, I don't know. Join, <laughs> join the debate that's been raging since Aristotle's Poetics uh, by emailing over <laughs> podcast at overthinkingit dot com or calling or texting two zero three two eight five six four zero one. You call- may win it. You may win the argument and be the person, the winner, who finally settles all these questions once and for all. The possibility, <laughs> the fame, the fortune—it's amazing. It blows your mind. It, you, <laughs> You gotta wonder. I mean, running a, a blog where we debate this kind of poop all the time, right? Like, um, <laughs> you poop today. You're in a poop mood today. Sorry, I've just been uh, I've been reaching into the reaching into the toilet. I've been doing the. Uh, the train spot never mind um the you know uh, right like the, the, you have to imagine that it's worthwhile that the that the conversation itself is worthwhile even if you don't think that um 
that any answers are are sort of going to uh, are going to to come to it. And like I, you know, it's hopeful. Life is a great life is a great mystery. Like living day to day, having friends, falling in love, falling out of love, getting your heart broken. Well, having that's your, the hope. That's the <laughs> we hope <laughs> having your pet die. It's all. It's all. You know, life is a mystery. Everyone must stand alone. I hear you call my name. And it it feels like www.overthinking.com, the site where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It It probably doesn't deserve. All right, everyone. You may now resume your crappy day. Ladies about the premium video package. Right then was when we were all gonna snap off our police outfits and magic mic it down the catwalk for all of you uh, to the Madonna song. But unfortunately, that premium service we don't have any customers yet, so <laughs> no one wants no one wants to see that. No one wants to join that club. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> they actually want their strippers played by actual strippers and <laughs> not by guys from the internet. But I can communicate the emotional life of a stripper with greater authenticity and sincerity than anyone with actual washboard apps. Why would they not prefer the artistic authenticity? 